Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Can't we all just get along? No. (laughs) No, we can't. Thanks for asking. Isn't that what it seems like these days? Gone are the days of Barney and us loving him and him loving us, and it seems here to stay is disagreement, conflict, and anger. Well, as luck would have it, on today's episode, I'll present to you three ways to handle that conflict. First, we'll learn that the best way may just be to embrace it. Next, we'll learn that if you just give in and do what you're told, that'll probably solve it. And finally, we'll just be given a long, drawn-out lecture with the hope that we'll figure it out so they don't have to get involved. So plant that little root of bitterness, stop your complaining, and prop your eyelids open with toothpicks like you see them do in the cartoons. Because I really don't care what you think, like it or not, here we go. Well, this segment should be pretty short. I know, I know, you don't believe me. And with good reason. I tend to be a bit uh, verbose. But this is something completely different. Normally, I'll find articles that make no logical sense, and I voice my displeasure, and I point out the errors, obvious or otherwise, and I offer my corrections, and I tie it up with the true truth of a biblical foundation. And that all takes time. But this, this is completely different. Found on Psychology Today, headline, Embracing Bitterness, The Benefits of Resentment. (laughs) Yes! Thank you, Ms. Amanda Ann Gregory, you licensed clinical professional counselor and trauma psychotherapist, you. Agreed. Now I have justification for my persistent, chronic, severe, and might I say comforting companion of bitterness. Well, thanks for listening to Logica... Okay. Look, regardless of my personal bitter sona, this article caught my eye because, well, I mean, it just seems to be bad advice, right? I think if I walked into a counselor, said I was bitter, and I was told, that's probably for the best, I think I'd walk out of that office and try to find someone that's actually interested in helping me. Now, in this article, Ms. Gregory offers four times or areas of your life where resentment is a good thing, and she gives some examples. Now, if I'm being honest, she's not wrong about the issues in her examples. She's not wrong that actions should be taken, but the advice she's giving seems empty. It's purely emotion-based and self-centered. She offers no ultimate solution or eternal principle, just a surface humanistic excuse. So let's get into this. You'll see what I mean. So the good doctor gives her four areas where resentment is a good thing. Those areas are resentment can keep you safe. Resentment is part of healing. Resentment is an opportunity for relationship repair. And resentment promotes self-worth. Okay, so let's look at her reasoning. How can resentment keep you safe? Well, she starts off with defining resentment as the feeling of anger or indignation you feel when you perceive that you've been wronged. She makes the claim that if you didn't have resentment, you wouldn't know you've been wronged. She further says that if you are wronged and don't feel a negative emotion because of it, there's something wrong with you. But since we feel resentment, it helps us know that we're being harmed and it triggers us to take steps to promote our safety or promote our best interests. 
She gives examples of a friend that makes plans with you and consistently cancels, or finding out that a coworker is being paid more than you even though you do the same job or you do better work. If it wasn't for sweet, sweet resentment, you may just ignore it. But as luck would have it, our resentment leads us to discuss with our friend or employer, and by doing so, this can, quote, help promote your emotional safety and material well-being, or even your moral, political, or legal rights. Okay, next is our healing. She claims that those that have been harmed severely and or repeatedly, you need to embrace and process all emotions, including resentment, and to not do that, quote, may hinder your emotional processing and delay or sabotage healing. Moving to relationship repair. She says that when you're wronged by someone, your relationship is broken from anywhere from a very short period of time to potentially forever. Resentment is the emotion that tells you that the relationship is currently in a broken state of being. For example, if a friend consistently breaks those plans, and I mean, I'm getting the feeling that she's been deeply wounded by someone that she considered to be a friend. Well, if this happens and you don't feel resentment, you may not recognize the relationship is broken. So you'll never try to mend it. And you'll either continue to be hurt or the relationship will end. Finally, it promotes self-worth. If you've been wronged, resentment is what tells you that you've been wronged. For example... <laughs> And you'll never guess, if a friend consistently breaks plans, I'm not kidding here, that person clearly doesn't believe your time is valuable. If you have a high sense of self-worth, you'll realize your time is valuable, and you'll be resentful. If you have a low self-worth, you won't be resentful, and de facto agree that your time is worthless. So clearly, quote, resentment is often rooted in healthy self-esteem or the sense that one is worthy of respect, thoughtful consideration, or fair treatment. And she wraps up with the statement that resentment, like anger, as well as other emotions, can be both harmful or beneficial. If it's severe and persistent, it can lead to physical and or mental health issues. So you want to be careful, right? But as she says, quote, Resentment isn't a bad emotion. It's simply an emotion. Okay, so the first bundle of questions I have is, is our, is our, Ms. Gregory, who has hurt you so? What friend has canceled plans one too many times? Shouldn't you use your resentment emotion and go address this with your uncaring friend? But my second question bundle is, are, where are you pulling this advice from? What's your basis for any of this? In other words, how do you know that resentment can be good or bad? Where do you draw your determination of good and bad? And where are you basing your view of self-worth? I honestly wonder if she knows. But I know, and you know. We find her foundation simply by reading her words. If you look at what she said, her basis for her entire article is simply that you are you. And the fact that you were you means that you're special and you need to love you enough to you, 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 you. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think a person should be harmed or taken advantage of by anyone. And I absolutely agree that you need to look out for yourself. But to claim that the only way we'd ever know we've been wronged is by the triggering of an emotion, that sounds silly. And the only reason she gives to not just be resentful and bitter all the time and actually look for a remedy and a resolution to a given situation is so as to not cause you undue physical or mental health problems. And notice that there isn't one aspect of this article, from recognizing the wrong to healing to resolution, that has anything to do with anything 
apart from self. And this is one of, if not the biggest issue with Freudian-based secular counseling. Advice or help that discounts the existence of eternal truths is generally hollow, as it focuses entirely on self. And we all know how unreliable and fickle we are, whether we want to admit it or not, right? If I am the standard I should measure myself by, (laughs) I'm screwed. So is resentment a good thing? Should we embrace bitterness in our lives? Now, although I agree that when we've been wronged or hurt, emotions are evoked, that's only natural. And I do agree with her that if you don't have some sort of emotion, that seems like it would be indicative of some other problem. Emotions are clearly a gift from God, and God clearly has an emotional component to his character, or else we wouldn't have them as we're made in his image. The difference, of course, is that God has emotions, but is not emotional. We have emotions, but they're tainted by a sin-cursed world, so they're not perfect, and they're not always overly reliable. So, is resentment, as Ms. Gregory claims, the emotion that informs us the wrong that's been done to us? Or is the emotion a reaction or response to knowing we've been wronged? Do we only understand right from wrong based on a chemical response that evokes an emotion? Or do we emote based on a knowledge of right and wrong? From a worldview that doesn't include God, Yes, the emotion, an evolved chemical reaction, informs us of the injustice. There is literally no other explanation. In fact, from an evolutionary standpoint, emotions are pointless, or at least most of them are. Love is a stupid emotion, as is disappointment, and resentment for that matter. I could see an evolutionary use for anger or rage, but the others are kind of evolutionarily silly. I digress. The reality is, when your worldview is one without a lawmaker or a rule giver, you have no way to determine an injustice in the first place. You're stuck with only emotions. Those that ignore the fact that there must be a God will say that societal norms or agreed-upon social behavior is where our sense of justice comes from. But at the same time, they have no way to say that someone with a different sense of justice isn't just more evolved. The question of, does resentment inform us of the injustice, or does our sense of justice evoke an emotion, is as easy as which came first, the chicken or the egg. The answer to both are simple, as they're both found in the Bible. The chicken came first, created on day five with the birds. Our sense of justice is codified in the Ten Commandments, and from conception, the work of the law is written on our hearts. As we are born and get older, it doesn't take very long before our conscience also bears witness, and our conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse us. We know right from wrong. We know when we've been treated unjustly, because justice is inherent to our very being, because once again, God is a perfectly just God, and we are image bearers, meaning we also have a built-in sense of justice, unfortunately once again tainted by a fallen world. So, should we embrace bitterness and resentment? Well, as Christians, we're told in Hebrews 12, along with a list of other words of advice, I wouldn't call them commands, but good godly wisdom, we're told to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. 
In the Hebrew culture, a poisonous plant was termed bitter. Think of Exodus when the Israelites in the wilderness came to the waters of Marah. They couldn't drink it because it was bitter. That didn't mean it made you make a weird face if you drank it. It meant that it was poisonous. It would harm or kill you. The book of Hebrews is written to believers, but the concept holds true for Christians in all aspects of life. If we become embittered, it shows, and it's deadly. Just like if you taste something bitter today, people see it on your face. If we are bitter, resentful people, it shows. And as the world listens to our words and watches our conduct and character, we must be people that are distinct from the world. Now that said, we all experience resentment or bitterness from time to time, or even for a season. It could be a lengthy season. But as humans, we are called to forgive. As Christians, we are commanded to forgive. Jesus, in giving us the example for prayer, doesn't say we should pray, forgive us our trespasses, as we consider forgiving those that trespass against us eventually, when enough water has passed underneath of the bridge. No, we ask for forgiveness as we are granting forgiveness to those that have wronged and hurt us. Now, don't mistake this for excusing the person or condoning the actions, and don't think this means you must allow yourself to be back in that situation. Those are outside of the realm of forgiveness. One can forgive and yet continue with the lawsuit. One can forgive and yet press charges. One can forgive and yet decide that continued attempts at friendship would be unwise. In fact, forgiveness doesn't even really have to be stated to the individual. And in some cases, if time has passed and the individual has died, forgiveness can't be stated directly to them. Forgiveness is a spiritual condition and takes place first between you and God. In his psalm lamenting his sin with Bathsheba after being confronted by the prophet Nathan, David cries out to God, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, Did David only sin against God? Well, yes and no. He sinned against a variety of people in his actions. But ultimately, as God is the authority, David sinned against God alone. Likewise, our forgiveness is one of spiritual cleansing, purifying between us and God. Once we can be forgiving as God would have us be, we can then offer or grant our forgiveness to others. Until we write that part of our relationship with God, we are incapable of offering true forgiveness to others. Sadly, the advice that Ms. Gregory is offering is par for the course and is indicative of the kind of advice being given to an exponentially increasing number of people seeking some sort of psychiatric or psychological help. And how unsatisfying long-term is it to be told that it's all about you? I mean, the self-esteem movement in this world is a very dangerous and damaging movement. Being told to love ourselves is one of the dumbest pieces of advice we could ever be given. Our value isn't found in our existence. Our value is found in the fact that we are image bearers of God, created in his image, formed by God. For Christians, we find our value, our worth in the fact that we are children of God. Again, to try to place ourselves at the center of our universe is unsatisfying, unfulfilling, and dangerous, as the person that fails us and lets us down the most is ourselves. To offer counseling advice that simply says, hey, whatever you're feeling is right because you're feeling it, and you need to accept those feelings, and you need to learn to love yourself, well, that's stupid advice. Too harsh? (laughs) Just look around you at all of the damage lost people in this world. People mutilating themselves because of emotion. People harming others, harming themselves because the world tells us that we're the most important, and truth be told, we can't stand ourselves. We know who we are. 
In the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Or so said Paul to Timothy. The key to this entire diatribe is the first statement. People will be lovers of self. So as Christians, we understand that emotions are part of life. Controlling our emotions, placing them back on Christ in light of the true truth found only in the Bible, is what we are to do with those emotions. We must place love of self at the bottom of our list that has love of God as our first priority. With regard to counseling, if needed, and there is absolutely no shame in utilizing the wisdom of a trained expert to help you noodle things out, do everything you can to avoid secular counselors. Find a Bible-based Christian counselor, or preferably a solid biblical counselor. The only way to work through issues in our lives is to place God at the center, then work our way out from there. As for the premise of this article, well, <laughs> gonna have to excuse my language here, but this is just bunk. Yep, I said it. I'll say it again. Bunk! The world doesn't need people patting them on the head and telling them what a good boy or girl, or whatever you identify as today, that you are. The world needs a wake-up call, a head-on collision with truth, a firm foundation, a rock to set their feet upon. Jesus is that foundation. The Bible holds that truth. And it's our job to help a traumatized, resentful, depressed, hurting, and increasingly desperate world to find it. Have you ever felt like you were being set up? You know, someone asks an odd question, one you know is just leading somewhere or everything was aligning in a certain direction, almost funneling you into a corner with no way out? On a national or global scale, conspiracy theorists have an ability to turn everyone and everything into something they're being set up for, and they will not be fooled again. Well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Far from it. My guess is that you're not one either. I'd say that in my experience, most people I know are not into conspiracies, as they're mostly just silly or crazy or seemingly impossible. But, and, and hear me out here, are you like me, still not a conspiracy guy, or gal, I, I want to be sure not to leave out any of all of the two genders, but it's starting to get a little harder deciphering what's conspiracy and what's starting to move from theory to verifiable. The last few years seems like a whirlwind of news, fake and otherwise, anger, fear, confusion, canceling, fact-checking, and chaos. And honestly, I don't know how those that purport to believe in nothing have survived, and realistically, without a belief in the true truth, an unwavering, non-contradictory belief in God of the Bible, I'm not sure what people are grabbing onto to survive. Now, that said, you remember how you used to see commercials about starving children all the time, right? Have you noticed that they're, I mean, they're still there, but not as frequent and definitely not as prime time? Now, that's because globally, hunger has been dropping for many years. Now, you may say it's because of Sally Struthers and her commercials that fix the problem. And sure, there's no doubt that all the donations, all the mission trips and the sharing of and helping with upgrading technology and upgrading sanitation systems, etc., they've helped over the years. But it's also because we've made large advancements in food production. 
despite the fear porn stars claiming that if the global population rises just one more person, nobody will have any food at all. But as good as that's been, over the last few years, just prior to COVID, global hunger has started to edge back up again. And although I'm not a conspiracy nut, I have a hard time believing it's not by design, at least in part. Since the COVID days, we've all learned, or at least most of it, well, some of it, there's some people that have learned that the UN seems to have more sway on this planet than they should, and the World Economic Forum is made up of very powerful, very wealthy, very evil people who have their own designs for this country and this world, and they have the right people in the right places to make this happen, even if they have to play the long game to get there. Nearly 35 years ago, global warming was announced in the news. It was going to kill the forests, cause deadly acid rain, destroy the ozone layer, and basically burn the planet into a crisp if we don't do something. And for 35 years, we've consistently and increasingly been doing some things. Yet we continue to hear of the horrors and impending doom of global warming, generally man-caused, and climate change, my favorite, weather weirding, and many other clever names meant to scare us like snowpocalypse and thousand-year this and mega that. Now the focus, of course, was on emissions from industry, exhaust from cars, fossil fuels, air conditioning, refrigerants used in air conditioning, etc., etc., but it didn't take long for them to point to livestock. Cattle are what we always discuss, but livestock in general. And this is because we barbarians want our pork and steak and milk and wool and all the other stuff. The planet is dying and ever nearing heat death, but we want our stuff. They've tried to get us to stop eating meat. They've told us point blank that our bloodthirsty craving for meat is a direct contributor to warming. Cows need to be fed. Cows burp and fart. Cows take energy to process, then we have to cook that delicious tender cow meat, preferably wrapped in some pig meat, and since we haven't voluntarily complied, I believe that we're now being forced into it. Remember, the order of these fascists is to first nudge, then shove, and then shoot. They've been nudging us for decades, now they're starting to shove. Hard. And if they have to sacrifice, you know, hundreds of millions of men, women, and children to get us into compliance... Well, everything has a cost. See, they've got a solution for us. It's just not one that most of us want. Found on Vox.com, headline, The Lie of Expired Food and the Disastrous Truth of America's Food Waste Problem. Oh, no, I'm sorry, no, not that one. Found on the NewAmerican.com, headline, World Economic Forum, We Can Be Conditioned to Eat Weeds and Bugs to Save Us from Climate Change. Oh my goodness, no, not that one. This is embarrassing. I'm just a little discombobulated here. If only there was some way to edit out my obvious mistakes. Oh, but alas. Found on nypost.com, worm burgers could solve world hunger, scientists claim. Well, you know what? While we're here, we might as well just touch on all three of these things, right? Yeah, let's do that. For the last handful of years, scientists, the UN and the World Economic Forum, among others, have been pushing harder and harder to get us to, you know, just eat bugs. They're protein. Just eat the bugs. And for about the same amount of time, but popping up more lately, it's time to just eat the expired food as well. It'll be fine. 
So let's start with that first article, the one found on Vox. The author, Alyssa Wilkinson, starts by saying how ingrained the idea of throwing food away that's past the date is in her very being. She might sniff, but for the most part, if, quote, my jam or almond milk or package of shredded Italian cheese blend has expired, the fix was simple. Into the garbage it goes. She says she's only had food poisoning a few times from restaurants, but although she knows that throwing food away is wrong, she just doesn't want to be sick again. She cites some statistics that I'd probably say are accurate. 40% of food produced in the U.S. is thrown out. Every year, the average family throws away $1,500 to $2,500 worth of food. 25% of our water is used to produce food that's thrown out and 21% of our landfills is food. On top of that, federal regulations won't even let us donate our expired food to the food banks and let some other poor sap take the risk. Well, the direction she goes, and what we're being told more and more lately, is don't worry about those dates. Now, in principle, I agree. The date isn't a hard and fast rule. I've had milk expire well before and well after the date. Same with eggs, same with cheese. But that's not what they're saying. The thought today is to just eat the expired food. It'll be fine. Plus, when that's all you have because the store shelves are empty or your wallet is, you'll be happy you're doing it. That brings us to the next article. The World Economic Forum saying if we just do it, we can learn to live on bugs and weeds. And there is an infinite amount of bugs and weeds. So all our bellies would be full and we'd all be happy and so healthy. Douglas Broom, a WEF agenda contributor, pulls out and dusts off the same old trope. Population is going to go up, but it's going to be up by 2 billion more people in 30 years. Food is going to be very scarce. No way we can feed that many people. No. Mm -mm. Plus, and this is really just a side note, definitely not the true agenda. Remember, they just care about the people. But 14.5% of greenhouse gases come from farming animals for meat. And if we just eliminated that, you know, the climate would be better and the planet would heal. Wouldn't you like that? He notes that weeds are plentiful, nutritious, and can be tasty if you know the right ones to pick. <laughs> but he cautions, be careful. You don't want to pick the poisonous ones. You might accidentally die. Whoopsie. Plus, as we're apparently starving, which is what's requiring us to eat the weeds in the first place, we want to check with the proper authorities so that we don't accidentally scoop up some weeds that are forbidden for us to pick because of some, you know, stupid regulation. But don't get too fixated on weeds. Let's not forget about the yummy bugs. Ooh, and grubs. Mmm. I remember reading the book How to Eat Fried Worms when I was a kid. Yeah, I'm not eating grubs. Thanks, though. And for good measure, we're being told that we're going to have to get used to the idea of drinking sewage water also. Now, they call it recycled water, but it's recycled from sewage. Now, in all honesty, I actually do believe we have the technology to clean up water to the point it's good to drink. As long as we can purify it from disease and pharmaceuticals, legal or otherwise, fine. I just don't want to be told about it, okay? They quote a psychologist that says your natural reaction to be disgusted by these suggestions it can be modified over time. Yeah, that sounds fine. He says that by using media manipulation, never heard of that before, we can be conditioned to not be disgusted by these disgusting things. Now, the article in question and the author are actually conservative-leaning, 
But there are more and more mainstream media sources telling us that it's fine. Just eat the bugs. You don't want people to starve, right? You don't want the planet to burst into flames, right? If you love people, if you just think of the children, you'd eat the bugs. Speaking of grubs, let's move to mealworms. I mean, they have the word meal built right in. So apparently in South Korea, they've cooked up some mealworms, which are simply just beetle larvae, and they mixed in some sugar, and it tastes like authentic meat. Oh, oh, someone says that, then I guess, I mean, who am I to second guess that uh, that's someone who, who says that, that thing? Again, we really need to start doing this because the population is going to go up. Food, as has been the case for a few centuries now, is going to just run out, so we'll need alternatives. And you don't want to destroy the climate, right? But look, maybe you don't care about the planet, like some kind of animal not worthy of life, but maybe you, since you're obviously selfish, would care about your health. Well, mealworms have been shown to reduce cholesterol and inflammation and improve heart rhythms. Plus, they have high amounts of fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, fiber, protein. I know, I'm getting my shoes on right now also. I'm going to head on down to my local meal wormery. I want mine warm right out of the beetle. Those are the best ones. Additionally, there are some other, uh, shall we say, oddities happening these days. As of July 2022, since the beginning of 2021, there have been partial or complete destructions of 98 food processing or related plants in the United States. You know, things like fires and explosions. We're seeing what seems like more poultry than ever being culled due to bird flu, and we're paying farmers not to farm. Just let their ground lay untouched for a year or two to let it replenish itself. Now, that last one may actually be a good thing to do, but you know what? Farmers already know this. They don't need the government to tell them how to rotate crops. Oh, not to mention, fertilizer is under attack, and not just any fertilizer, but the the stuff that helps yield the biggest and the best crops. Yeah, the climate doesn't like that stuff either, so, you know, bye bye Anybody else feel that pressing on your back right now? Yeah, that's just the corner we're being shoved into. Okay, at this point, you may be experiencing a slight change in audio. Well, that's because after I recorded this, there were a few things I felt I just didn't lay out accurately or completely enough, and I just couldn't let that stand. Now, I know what those points are, but you'll never know. So, being pressed into our little corner, what do we do? Well, there are some who say that we aren't supposed to build bigger barns, meaning we aren't supposed to stock up or plan ahead or definitely not be preppers because apparently if you do, that very night your life will be required of you. Per Matthew 6, we know that Jesus tells us very clearly that we are not to worry about food or clothing. God will provide if God clothes the flowers, right? So, for you to plan ahead, to stock up, to prepare, it just proves you don't trust God right? Well, what we should probably do is read the Bible in context. That seems almost like a better idea than just proof texting, (laughs) at least to me. The parable of the rich man has absolutely nothing to do with stocking up or preparing. It has to do with coveting, with what exactly the rich man placed his faith in. The rich man was proud of what he had done and wanted to build barns to store the work of his hands. And then he could just live his life without a care in the world. But he forgot one crucial thing. God is sovereign. God is in control. God was the one that blessed him with the abundance of crops. While he was focused on his fortune and the upcoming pleasure it was going to afford him, he totally dismissed God 
and died a lost soul. As for the small portion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 regarding the command of Jesus to not be anxious about our life, what we eat or drink or our body or clothing, we tend to look at this as a standalone section. But oddly enough, it starts with the word, therefore. And every time we see the word therefore, we're supposed to ask what the therefore is there for. In order to answer that, we have to move back a little bit in the scriptures. Jesus, in Matthew 6, moves from the Lord's Prayer to discussing fasting, and then a topic break of sorts, then into where we lay up our treasures, in heaven or on earth. Remember, where we store our treasure, our valued, highly prized, coveted possessions, that's where our heart is. Jesus says that if we store up our treasure on earth, it's subject to the corruption and decay of the world. But storing up our treasure in heaven is the only safe, secure location. He then talks about the health of the eye, but this isn't the eyeball as such. This is your passion and desire. What you behold as your most valuable thing will dictate your very heart attitude. He then says that we simply can't serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Look at the birds, look at the flowers. God takes care of them, and you are prized infinitely higher than these, as an image-bearer of God, more specifically as a born-again child of God. And in verse 33, he gives the key thought to this passage. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, it said to seek only? No, it said to seek first the kingdom of God. God will ensure you have the things you need in this life, the things that he deems you need in this life. But let me ask you, if you truly believe that we're not supposed to worry about food or drink or clothing or the body, do you buy clothing? Do you buy food? Do you wash your body? Do you go to the doctor or the dentist? See, Jesus never said to not be anxious about having extra food or drink. He said food or drink. That's any food or drink. And yet he and his apostles had clothing in fact, they had more than one set of clothing, as it turns out. The charge here isn't about planning, about purchasing food, about taking care of your family or your health. The charge here is priority, about where your heart is, what's important. If you're prioritizing a stockpile of food over God, well, that's an idol. You're doing it wrong. If you're working 100 hours a week neglecting your family, even with good intentions to make a financially better life for them, but you're ignoring God... You're doing it wrong. Your priorities are wrong. If you're doing anything where you're not seeking God first, you've got your priorities mixed up. This holds true for stocking up or prepping also. If you're so consumed with surviving the coming zombie apocalypse and you do nothing but give lip service to God and his son Jebus and the ghost guy, or maybe not even that, then you're violating the priority of what's supposed to be important in life. This is where Jesus said that this is what the Gentiles, meaning the unsaved, do. In fact, the reason we're being told to eat bugs, weeds, grubs, sewage water, and mealworms is because God has been taken out of the equation. He hasn't just been deprioritized. We're told that he doesn't even exist. There's nobody out there that will save us. We're the gods of this universe. If we don't save us, nobody will. But God has provided a planet that's self-sustaining. Yes, it's ultimately sustained by the will of Christ alone, but from a natural level, the earth has been designed by God to be self-sustaining, self-cleaning, 
self-healing, and self-adjusting. Everything naturally reproduces as a continuous cycle. Additionally, man and beast, who at first only ate vegetation, were then allowed to eat certain kinds of meats, and then were allowed to eat pretty much anything. Nothing was unclean anymore. Now, you either have to believe in no God, or an incompetent, impotent God that had no way to know that there would be this many people wanting to eat meat on the planet. Up there, oh bother, whatever shall we do, he says to Jesus and the Holy Spirit while wringing his hands in concern. Yeah, I don't subscribe to a God that's not sovereign, that's not omnipotent, that's not omniscient. If he says we can eat meat, that means for the rest of time until everything is made new again, and after that, well, pretty sure that whatever system is set up, I'll probably be just fine with it. At no point was God worried about global meat shortages or global warming. So back to us, what do we do? Well, from a practical standpoint, the worst time to decide to prepare is when the crisis is upon us. Ask anyone down to the last shreds of paper on the toilet roll, wandering the store aisles full of empty shelves, wondering what they could use instead. Ask the parents of infants in need of baby formula driving for hour upon hour, store to store, looking for just one can of dramatically overpriced formula for their child with very specific dietary needs. So as they say, the best time to start preparing is yesterday, the second best time is today. And just think practically, is it just you? Or do you have a large family? Maybe you can garden and can. Maybe you're like me and not only can't, well, at least I've never tried it, but I don't want to, as garden things are not really my preferred taste. Maybe the survival food is more your style. Yeah, it's expensive in bulk, but when you look at your caloric needs per day, it's actually pretty affordable. Maybe buying a little extra dry, non-perishable goods each shopping trip and setting them back. That might be the way you can do it. Realize this. In the old days, you know, a few years ago, the grocery stores ran on about a three-day inventory. If they went without trucks supplying goods for longer than three days, the shelves started going empty quickly. These days, we may have a crisis. But really, what are the odds of that, right? I mean, it's a crisis. (laughs) Or more likely, we'll have a supply chain disruption or shortages of items, etc., etc. Again, I believe that there is a lot of by design cooked into this, but it really doesn't matter, does it? Being right about it doesn't really fill your belly. So my advice, if you're a fast food everyday eater, a stop at the store every night person, or one who runs on only buy the things you need and not a thing more, which makes every one of your shopping trips an absolute necessity, you may want to rethink how you're approaching the near future. Realize this. This is September 2022. We're just now nearing the end of the food supply from last year. The 2022 supply will start to trickle in soon, and there are many, many gaps that aren't being closed. I don't think the stores will be picked clean, at least not in the United States, or left with nothing, but the selection has already been limited. More space is showing up on shelves, and we should expect that the available quantities of the items that are available are going to be diminished. So make a plan. Whatever it is, just don't be caught with your shelves empty. And let me add, support your local economy as much as possible. If there's a local farmer's market, support them. If there's a local meat market, support that. If the world economy or the world supply lines collapse, these are the people that are able to soften the blow. But they're generally smaller producers running on a thin profit margin, and they need your support now in order to keep running. No, it's not possible for everything, but it is possible for many things. Above all, let me stress this. Don't rest on your own knowledge, your own wisdom, or your own strength. Also, 
don't panic. Do go back to the words of Jesus. We do not need to be like the Gentiles, the unsaved. We do not need to be anxious because a guarantee that Jesus made us speaking directly to those that are saved is God knows, God loves, and God cares. And all things will work out for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. This doesn't promise you'll avoid trials. Even for the martyrs in the Bible, or through the ages, and even today, these promises still hold true, although from an earthly viewpoint it's hard to see how sometimes. The good we're promised may not materialize itself as earthly good, but we know that no matter how good or bad we have it on earth, if we're saved, we are promised good beyond our wildest dreams in the next life. So we should be informed as to what's going on and plan accordingly. I believe that being able to gather information and make a plan is a blessing from God that we should not overlook. So in all things, give God all the glory for the ability to stay informed, for the time and ability to plan, and ultimately for the promises we've been made by a God that will never break them. Welcome back to another episode of The American Genesis. Today... I'm just going to warn you, today is going to be a lot of reading, but much less commentary, and that's not because I'm trying to keep it short or I just don't feel like talking, rather it's because the Congress assembled apparently felt the need to lay out in unbelievable, exacting detail one thing. Most of Article 9 of the Articles of Confederation is one topic. Now, at the time, it, clearly this was an important topic, but <laughs> wow. Anyway. That said, in today's episode, we'll finish up Article 9, and in the next episode, we'll finish up the Articles of Confederation. So, let's go ahead and dive in. Continuing with Article 9, we read, The United States, in Congress assembled, shall also be the last resort on appeal in all disputes and differences now subsisting, or that hereafter may arise between two or more states concerning boundary, jurisdiction, or any other cause whatever, which authority shall always be exercised in the manner following. Whenever the legislative or executive authority or lawful agent of any state in controversy with another shall present a petition to Congress stating the matter in question and praying for a hearing, notice thereof shall be given by order of Congress to the legislative or executive authority of the other state in controversy and a day assigned for the appearance of the parties by their lawful agents, who shall then be directed to appoint, by joint consent, commissioners or judges to constitute a court for hearing and determining the matter in question. But, if they cannot agree, Congress shall name three persons out of each of the United States, and from the list of such persons, each party shall alternately strike out one, the petitioner's beginning, until the number shall be reduced to thirteen, and from that number not less than seven, nor more than nine names, as Congress shall direct, shall in the presence of Congress be drawn out by lot, and the persons whose names shall be so drawn, or any five of them, shall be commissioners or judges to hear and finally determine the controversy, so always as a major part of the judges who shall hear the cause shall agree in the determination, 
And if either party shall neglect to attend at the day appointed without showing reasons which Congress shall judge sufficient, or being present, shall refuse to strike, the Congress shall proceed to nominate three persons out of each state, and the Secretary of Congress shall strike in behalf of such party absent or refusing, and the judgment and sentence of the court to be appointed in the manner before prescribed shall be final and conclusive. And if any of the parties shall refuse to submit to the authority of such court or to appear or defend their claim or cause, the court shall nevertheless proceed to pronounce sentence or judgment, which shall in like manner be final and decisive. The judgment or sentence and other proceedings being in either case transmitted to Congress and lodged among the acts of Congress for the security of the parties concerned, provided that every commissioner, before he sits in judgment, shall take an oath to be administered by one of the judges of the Supreme or Superior Court of the State, where the cause shall be tried, well and truly, to hear and determine the matter in question, according to the best of his judgment, without favor, affection, or hope of reward, provided also that no state shall be deprived of territory for the benefit of the United States. <sighs> Continuing on, all controversies concerning the private right of soil claimed under different grants of two or more states, whose jurisdictions as they may respect such lands and the states which passed such grants are adjusted, the said grants, or either of them being at the same time claimed to have originated antecedent to such settlement of jurisdiction, shall, on the petition of either party to the Congress of the United States, be finally determined as near as may be in the same manner as is before prescribed for deciding disputes respecting territorial jurisdiction between different states. Okay, I'm going to need to pause to take a slight nap at this point. I mean... I warned you. Okay. So many words, right? And they all have to do with basically boundary disputes between states. And, and that's it. So, boil down. If the states have a dispute about boundaries and they take it to the Congress, they first try to settle it themselves with the help of a judge. If that didn't work, then the Congress would name three persons per state. That would be whittled down by the two states and then chosen by lot by the Congress. This basically appears, at least to me, to be the first attempt at a Supreme Court, although very cumbersome to put together. Maybe this was set up as more of a threat. You know, either get this figured out or you'll have to sit there and be quiet and watch us go through this process. And remember, there were no phones, internet, or any other form of rapid communication. This would be accomplished by sending people on horseback to communicate with the states and the individuals from the states. I mean, what a pain, right? This is the most detailed article in the entire document, which, I mean, I guess is understandable. If you have infighting with no way to resolve it, this newly formed country made of individual, somewhat autonomous states would be at risk of fracturing apart. It's also understandable why this kind of exacting detail and this process didn't seem to make it into future documents. This seems like a good location for the phrase, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Let's continue on with Article 9, shall we? The United States, in Congress assembled, shall also have the sole and exclusive right and power of regulating the alloy and value of coin struck by their own authority or by that of the respective states, 
fixing the standard of weights and measures throughout the United States, regulating the trade and managing all affairs with the Indians, not members of any of the states, provided that the legislative right of any state within its own limits be not infringed or violated, establishing and regulating post offices from one state to another throughout all the United States, and exacting such postage on the papers passing through the same as may be requisite to defray the expenses of the said office, appointing all officers of the land forces in the service of the United States, accepting regimental officers, appointing all the officers of the naval forces, and commissioning all officers whatever in the service of the United States, making rules for the government and regulation of the said land and naval forces, and directing their operations. Okay, this part seems to be where someone in the Congress assembled raised their hand and said, uh, you know, we focused on war and boundaries. Aren't there some other things we should think of, too? And then some quiet mumbling about, no, we got it all, and uh, there's always one guy that thinks they know better. And then someone in the back said, oh, wait, what about everything else? And then they kind of did a brainstorm and dumped it all into this paragraph. And although they didn't give these points a lot of ink, they're actually very important. Right? So they set up a central valuation of money. I mean, can you imagine the chaos if every state had their own currency with their own determination of value? They set up a standard of weights and measures. I mean, this is biblical, right? I mean, you must have standards. You must have honest scales. Again, you can't have every state in the union of states with their own individual standards. They set up the central government as the arbiters of trade and Indian affairs. They set up a post office. Did you realize that the post office was set up this early in our history? I mean, I didn't. And along with that, postage, right? Because they needed to pay for those that move the mail around, a concept that in theory should work. But for some reason, we can't seem to do anything in the government without running a deficit these days. That's a different topic for a different day. And then they kind of reiterated what they had already said about setting up military personnel. Now, I'm going to call this the catch-all clause, as that's how it really kind of seems to me. Continuing on, the United States, and you'll never guess this, in Congress assembled, shall have authority to appoint a committee to sit in the recess of Congress to be denominated a committee of the states and to consist of one delegate from each state and to appoint such other committees and civil officers as may be necessary for managing the general affairs of the United States under their direction to appoint one of their number to preside, provided that no person be allowed to serve in the office of president more than one year in any term of three years, to ascertain the necessary sums of money to be raised for the service of the United States and to appropriate and apply the same for defraying the public expenses, to borrow money or emit bills on the credit of the United States, transmitting every half year to the respective states an account of all sums of money so borrowed or emitted, to build and equip a navy, to agree upon the number of land forces and to make requisitions from each state for its quota in proportion to the number of white inhabitants in such state, which requisition shall be binding, and thereupon the legislature of each state shall appoint the regimental officers, raise the men, and clothe, arm, and equip them in a soldier-like manner at the expense of the United States, and the officers and men so clothed, armed, and equipped shall march to the place appointed, and within the time agreed on by the United States in Congress assembled. But if the United States in Congress assembled shall, on consideration of circumstances, judge proper that any state should not raise men, or should raise a smaller number than its quota, and that any other state should raise a greater number of men than the quota thereof, such extra number shall be raised, 
officered, clothed, armed, and equipped in the same manner as the quota of such state, unless the legislature of such state shall judge that such extra number cannot be safely spared out of the same, in which case they shall raise, officer, clothe, arm, and equip as many of such extra number as they judge can be safely spared. And the officers and men so clothed, armed, and equipped shall march to the place appointed and within the time agreed on by the United States in Congress assembled. Okay, I'm going to skip a whole lot of that stuff. This is the first hint we get of a formal president. Now, not how we think of it today, not selected the same as today, not the same length of office as today, but this is a first shot, right? The Congress assembled knew that they couldn't run this country as a committee. The model that the founders looked to for most things was the biblical model, specifically the Mosaic model. Moses was the head, under God, of course, and under Moses were leaders, under them were leaders, etc. Each layer had a smaller amount of authority and a smaller number of people to manage and as needed, issues and authority would roll up to the top. Now, at this time, they didn't have a Senate, they didn't have a House, they had the Congress and a presiding congressman, or the president, so the Congress, in combination with the term of the president served, one year in every three, kept them from simply voting in a king. Again, this is kind of a cumbersome way of doing things and could potentially create all sorts of issues, but we see that they needed something relatively quickly as the Union of States were loosely united and without specific direction could potentially fracture, and they were headed in the right direction for a representative republic. Now, let's address the thousand-pound white elephant in the room, shall we? This, of course, sounds like a very racist section because the quotas for the armed forces were set based on the number of white inhabitants of the states. Now, as of the 1790 census, the closest I could find to this time, there were eight of the 13 states that were slave states. You would never guess them. Virginia, North Carolina, New York, Maryland, South Carolina, New Jersey, Georgia, and Delaware. The free states were Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. The eight slave states vastly outnumbered the others in free and enslaved population. In fact, the white population of the slave states was about two to one of the free states. Although the free states were free, they had some slavery going on, nearly entirely in Massachusetts. But that said, the slave population in the slave states was nearly seven to one of that of the free states. Additionally, the slave states held most of the land of this new country. The point is that the slave states held a lot of sway with how things happened. They had a lot of power. Now, I've mentioned this before, but we can cry racism all we want with the founding of this nation. But the reality is slavery was everywhere in the world. Just about every people group enslaved other groups, and just about every people group was enslaved by others at various times. And the colonies actually had slavery forced upon them by the king for the most part. But to the point of this article, the slave states held a lot of power. They typically considered the enslaved population, about a quarter of their total population, as property. In fact, they kind of tried to use them as people or as property, whichever benefited them the most for the issue at hand. But if the Congress had pushed to count them as people for the purposes of quota for military service, the articles would have never been agreed upon. The reality, whether people like it or not, is that things we find undesirable, even detestable today, must be placed in the proper context so as to look at why, not just what. Okay, wrapping up Article 9, we read, The United States, 
say it with me, in Congress assembled, shall never engage in a war, nor grant letters of marquee and reprisal in time of peace, nor enter into any treaties or alliances, nor coin money, nor regulate the value thereof, nor ascertain the sums and expenses necessary for the defense and welfare of the United States, or any of them, nor admit bills, nor borrow money on the credit of the United States, nor appropriate money, nor agree upon the number of vessels of war to be built or purchased, or the number of land or sea forces to be raised, nor appoint a commander-in-chief of the army or navy unless nine states assent to the same, nor shall a question on any other point except for adjourning from day to day be determined unless by the votes of a majority of the United States in Congress assembled. The Congress of the United States shall have power to adjourn to any time within the year, and to any place within the United States, so that no period of adjournment be for a longer duration than the space of six months, and shall publish the journal of their proceedings monthly, except such parts thereof relating to treaties, alliances, or military operations, as in their judgment require secrecy, and the yeas and nays of the delegates of each state on any question shall be entered on the journal when it is desired by any delegate, and the delegates of a state or any of them, at his or their request, shall be furnished with a transcript of the said journal, except such parts as are above accepted, to lay before the legislatures of the several states. So, although the Congress assembled gave themselves a fair amount of high-level powers, they also baked in a fair amount of accountability. Neither the president nor a minority group of congressmen could bully their way into getting something done. At the time the articles were approved, there were still only 13 states. In order to make decisions, they didn't just need a majority, but really a supermajority. Two-thirds of the states must agree before decisions were finalized. This took into account that not everyone is going to agree, but the people would generally lean one direction, and their representatives in Congress would vote to uphold that direction in each state. So this was a first shot at a representative republic. It's majority rule for the good of the nation. That is, until the nation loses their grasp on true truth, and on reality, and on the one true God. At this time, the nation as a whole were generally people of Christian faith, and if not faith, at least of morals and ethics. So generally, the majority opinion would be something generally good for the nation and the people. Now today, we see a very different look, where we're at about a 50-50 split, which is what the current makeup of our government shows per the representation, but those that represent us mostly don't care what the people want. So we've turned into some sort of an autocratic republic, where those in office use the people to get the votes, then do what they want, then blame the other side to a mostly uninformed populace to use the people to get the votes. And this happens on both sides of the aisle. There are very few honest brokers on either side when you really look at it. But that's the kind of thing we discuss in the other segments, not here. So that's the end of Article 9. See, we made it through. Maybe not the most exciting of the articles, but to know where we are, we need to know where we came from. And hopefully you're finding the thought process of our founders interesting, at least. You can see that they're close, but they're not quite right yet. Now that'll wrap up this episode of the American Genesis. So join me again next time where we'll wrap up the Articles of Confederation. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. 
Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.